Father, take what I say now and use it as you want to in each individual here. Take away the things that distract and leave the things that come from yourself. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Life can be confusing. And sometimes the more I think about it, the more confusing it gets. There's a saying, a quote from someone uh, who knows where, but it's in the context of science. And they said, there's no problem in science, no matter how difficult, which, if thought about in the correct way, doesn't get a lot more complicated still. And a lot of life is like that. The array of possibilities that set out in front of us can become almost paralyzing. And the freedom of choice can often become a new kind of slavery. It leads us to fret and worry over all of these different decisions we have to make. And that's just which TV channel to watch. Now, of course, for Christians, there's an added dimension to this. And it's a dimension that's meant to take away some of that doubt and fear. It's this idea that God wants to guide us into his will for our lives. If we believe that God has a purpose for us, then surely it must be important for us to discover what that purpose is. There are all those big issues that we face. What university should I go to if you're at that stage? Earlier, it's what subjects do I need to do for GCSE or AS or A-level? Later on, it's what job might I do? Should I marry? Who should I marry? Does anyone want to marry me? Um, where should I live? All of these things that are really difficult. What church should I join? And we get so confused. We want God's guidance. And it would be great if we would write it up in the sky somewhere. But it doesn't take us to live for very long to discover it's not like that. And so we begin to fret about how can we know God's guidance? What does he want us to do next? And sometimes our understanding of what guidance means makes this worse. You see, one of the big models that's out there, at least it was out there when I was growing up and going to camps and conferences of an evangelical nature, I guess. But one of the version was that God has these specific plans for every part of your life, but that it was my job to sort out what those plans were, to find that out. And the problem with that was that there's a whole new set of fears and worries that come in. What if I stray outside God's will for my life? What if I make the wrong decision and miss what God really wanted me to do? Is that it? Have I just blown it? 
And now God can never work out what his real purpose was, and I'm stuck with his second, third, or fourth best for my life. And this is a very real fear, because with the best will in the world and with the most prayerful planning, we face the fact that we don't know what the future holds. We never know how things are going to turn out. If I think God intends, definitely intends, one very specific set of outcomes for my life, and I plan and prepare accordingly, and then something totally unexpected happens, sending me off in a new direction, what am I supposed to make of that? Does that mean I just got it wrong in the first place? Does that mean I'm confused and on a new wrong track? What on earth am I meant to do in the face of all of this uncertainty? But what I'd like to do is to try and convince you that you should ease some of your anxieties on this point. I want to try and convince you that there's actually very little need for you to ever be in any doubt about God's will for your life again. Sounds like a tall order, I know, but bear with me on this one. Now, I'm afraid what that doesn't mean is that you won't have difficult decisions to make on the basis of inadequate information. But you see, these difficult and what we see as important decisions may not be quite as important to the whole plan of God as we think. They seem important to us because they're going to have a big impact on our lives, change its direction, change our daily experience, where we are, what we're doing, etc. But I'm now of an opinion that thankfully God's will for me for Belfast and for the world does not actually hinge on my arriving at a specific set of correct decisions taken in the right order that somehow open the combination lock that reveals God's will and purpose. Now, there's a bit of special pleading here because I kind of have to believe that or I'm in a very bad place. And I'll explain why. As I look back at my own life, most of it was fairly chaotic in terms of what I thought God wanted me to do and what ended up happening. When I was at school, I planned from about fourth form on that I was definitely going to study physics. You see, I loved maths, I loved physics, I quite liked chemistry, English was great too, hated biology, hated biology with a passion, and back then they let me drop it at the end of third year. So that was it, no more biology. You can see how this might not be going to work out exactly as I thought. About three months before I had to decide what university course I was going to apply for, this sneaking suspicion came along 
that God didn't want me to do physics, but maybe he did want me to study medicine instead. Now, how was this guidance working? Well, the first part of it was in the form of an extremely indominant aunt, professor of medicine, and I think her exact phrase was, of the late Professor Molly McGillan, was, what would you want to do physics for? Why don't you do something that would be useful? Not even sure that Tom's here for me to apologize to him for that, but she had very def definite opinions on things. So I'm not sure whether it was her or the Holy Spirit I was worried more about, but I also prayed about it, and I came to the conclusion out of that prayer that God did want me to train as a doctor. And looking back, it's also interesting to see what it was that convinced me of that, because the main thing was that that conviction came from the fact that whenever I prayed about this subject, I had a nameless dread fill my soul every time I thought of doing medicine. So it was clear that's what God wanted for me. If I love physics and was worried about God, medicine, then God must want me to study medicine. Now there's a whole, whole other psychological, psychotherapeutic package to be unraveled there, but that's how it kind of worked out. So with fear and trepidation, that's what I signed up for. And it turned out that medicine wasn't so bad after all. It was okay. Certainly a lot easier to get your head round than quantum So, you know, maybe that was all right. Then seven years later, I was a slow learner. So seven years later, I was ready to graduate and start work as a doctor. And then suddenly, in the middle of finals, I developed epilepsy, grand mal epilepsy. So I did my finals as an inpatient in Craigavon Area Hospital, pretty well sedated out of my head. So I at least was spared worrying much about them. They didn't really seem to matter that much, but it went okay, and it gave me a degree, and I started to work as a doctor. Now there was a problem, because this was pre-working hours directive we're talking about here. And so certainly where I was, you did every other night on call and the next day as well. So you work through from one day morning through to the evening of the next day. And you had every other weekend off. And when I was called to see patients in the middle of the night, I would have a fit. Now, I'm sorry if that word bothers you. I have an American friend who just shouts at me whenever I said I had a fit and says, you must use seizures. Fit's very pejorative. So I always just say, they were my fits. I'll call them what I want. <laughs> <laughs> so this, this, this was a spanner in the works because it was going to be really quite difficult to get fully trained to do this thing that I thought God had wanted me to do because of this medical condition. And then out of the blue I was offered a lecturing post in physiology, again pre-proper uh, employment law and legislation. But anyway, it was sort of, we will interview, but do you want it? And I said, well, why not, you know? Um, and I'm still there. But that was mainly a decision made on health grounds. It certainly wasn't made out of any great revelation that maybe I had been meant to be in academia all along and now God was leading me back into it. It kind of happened. 
So the things I thought God had planned for my life didn't really work out the way I thought they would. So what did that mean? Was any of this God's will for me? Would no other path taken have been valid? I certainly didn't see any of it coming looking forward. And that's the problem with this idea of a future-proof approach to guidance. That there's this fixed package that God will reveal to you, and that's the way. You never know what's going to happen. And I, though I accept that he does, I don't think he often makes it very clear to us ahead of time. I actually doubt if we could deal with it if he did. Looking back, though, it's now my conviction that it would have been a small matter for God to work around a very different set of decisions, that his plan for my life wouldn't necessarily have been totally undermined if I had gone ahead and studied physics or gone somewhere other than Queen's or whatever. You see, it wasn't really exactly what job I was doing that matters most to him, and it wasn't where I was doing it or any of these things that seem so crucial to us. But really, I think God's will was more concerned with how I was living my life. With God, it really is true that it ain't what you do, it's the way that you do it that matters. Maybe sometimes we look for God's will, if you like, in the wrong places and with all the wrong emotions. The idea that God plays some kind of hide and seek with us, where he's got this definite outcome that he wants for our lives, but he's making it obscure so that we've got to work and worry, trying to find that will, trying to find that piece, if you like, changing the matter of our bit, that hidden treasure somewhere. And that if we don't, then, well, sorry, you got it wrong, you failed. It's not a very attractive picture of a loving father and how he might deal with his children. See, I actually don't think God wants to leave us in any doubt about his will for us. He has no intention of hiding anything as important as that from us. Indeed, he's gone to a lot of trouble to make his will clear. Michael read for us a little bit of the Sermon on the Mount. Now that sermon gathers together in one place the sorts of things that God is really interested in. And surprisingly, educational outcomes, careers, success or otherwise, None of the things that actually concern us most, and that often say, for those of us who are parents, concern us most about our kids' lives, none of those things are there. 
In this statement of God's priorities, we get an opening up of the heart of God, and that then reveals his will for us. In verse 33, Jesus sums a lot of the teaching up in this statement. He tells us that God just wants us to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. It's a big just. But it's immediately apparent that that isn't in any way dependent on the decisions we make, these big decisions. It's not really about those sorts of things. It isn't anything to do with what we might nowadays package as the strategic direction of our life. I'm really sick to death of strategy, by the way. But anyway, that doesn't seem to be part of what God's talking about. In fact, it occurs to me that the things that we often see as distractions from the main thrust of what we think we should be doing, those things perhaps are God's core business, the things that he's most interested in. We can seek God's kingdom and his righteousness in any job or in none, in almost any place, and in almost any company. Each situation we find ourselves in brings opportunities to serve God and others, to be loving, honest, humble, caring, hardworking, open, hospitable, patient, gentle, wise, and courageous. It's in the detail of our lives that God's will is worked out. And interestingly then, again, unlike the emphasis in most of the things that we maybe get taught about guidance, which is always looking to things that are going to happen in the future. God's will is rather acutely focused on the present. We fret about what will happen next week, next month, next year. God's concern is with what's going on today, in this hour, in this minute. Jesus underlines this because he follows up his command to seek first the kingdom with this warning. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Now we usually think about verse 34 more as belonging with the verses that follow where Jesus talks about how God will look after us, given that he looks after the flowers and he looks after the birds and the animals, that he will look after us and we shouldn't worry about those things. So that sense of not needing to worry about the provision for our needs, that's definitely a part of it. But if we link it with the verse that it follows from, and which it's connected to by a big therefore, 
then we get a slightly different emphasis. I think Jesus recognized that one of the biggest barriers to actual obedience to God, which has to happen now, today, in the situation we find ourselves in, that a big barrier to that is to get lost and distracted by our worries about the future. Agonizing over the potential pitfalls or benefits of one path or another, even when it's got this spiritual emphasis on seeking God's guidance, which does matter, but that's easily something that can be substituted as an excuse for not behaving caringly with other people, for not noticing the things that are going on in their lives, because we're so wrapped up with the stuff we're worried about in our own. I think Romans 12 is talking about similar ideas. Beginning, we have that amazing first couple of verses, which talks about offering our bodies as living sacrifices, and then talks about having our whole persons transformed by the renewing of our minds. A renewing that then will allow us, it says, to test and approve what God's will is. That pleasing and perfect will. That sense of testing has this notion of experiment in it. I think what Paul's calling us to do here is to test out God's will by actually trying to live it through his spirit and then discovering in the practice of it that it really works. Paul doesn't seem to think that God's will for us is particularly in doubt. He doesn't spend ages unpackaging what that will might be. But he did seem to be in doubt as to whether most of us were committed to living within his will for us. If we go on down through the passage, he doesn't talk about most of the general circumstances of life, but he has one specific area which he obviously sees as being connected to this. And this is when, in verse 6, he starts talking about how God's will works itself out in the life of the church. This is what he says. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. And I'm sure, by the way, that that's not meant to be an exhaustive list. But it's enough to be going on with. Paul seems to be saying that if you wish to live in the will of Christ, you've got a job to do within his church. 
And then he says, get on with it. So that's a call to each of us to look at ourselves and to see what of all of these things have we been gifted to do? Because you are promised that you have been gifted to do something and that no one gift is particularly better than any others. But the gift you have, only you can exercise. So one big part of how God's will gets worked out is as we live obediently within his church. Don't think it matters exactly which little bit of his church universal we get connected with, but we do need to get connected with his church somewhere. And part of that connection is in serving others. Out of his grace, he has given you a gift. And he wants you to use it for the benefit of the people around you. And that actually means the people sitting beside you today, the people sitting in front of you, the people sitting behind you. This is part of where God's will gets worked out. So what I'm saying is that God's will for you and for me is actually fairly clear. It's laid out in his promises and in his commandments, in the priorities that we find in the epistles and the gospels, and ultimately and supremely in the life of Christ. It reflects God's priorities, not ours, and it's always focused on the present and has to be discovered in obedience. All lives offer similar opportunities. God is definitely an equal opportunity deity. And in that understanding of God's will, there's a certain freedom. I think we're free to make the best decisions we can and then just to get on with loving God and loving others, whatever the outcomes. We don't need to worry that we'll somehow miss God's best for us by making the wrong decision in our choice of job or home or church. These things are not confining in terms of what God wants for us. They do not constrain him or his will particularly. Where we are not willfully disobedient, and I do accept that we can be willfully disobedient and make decisions that clearly break his commandments and his guidance. But that's not because we were unaware of his guidance and his will. It's because we didn't want to be obedient in most cases. But where we aren't being willfully disobedient, we make the best decision we can, and we're free to rejoice in the fact that God gives us his confidence that he will work all things to good for those who love him. So if you really want to gauge how closely your life fits the will of God, don't look at what we call usually often the big stuff. Look at the details. Look at the sort of person you are to live with, 
to work with, to share family life with day by day. Look for the big three hallmarks of the life of obedience to God's will. Hallmarks of faith, hope, and love. These are the ways how God's will is demonstrated in our lives. We are to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. It's a plan that applies wherever you are, whatever your personal circumstances, whatever the conditions of your health, whatever the conditions of the economy, in every stage of life. This sums up each day's mission statement. These are the objectives by which each life is judged. With God, it's how we live today that really matters. Because the sacrifice, the making holy, is a living sacrifice, it has to be done afresh each day. It's a sacrifice that gets remade consciously, day by day, hour by hour. We need to learn to ask ourselves the question, what are God's priorities in the situation I am in right now? Not next week, not next year. Here and now, whatever your experience, whatever your situation. And God's will for us is revealed to us in Christ, not primarily for our comfort, but as a call to action. The amazing thing is that in that action, we often find God's gracious comfort. Amen. Just want to follow on from that by giving us all time, myself included, time to maybe reflect a little bit on it. So I've chosen three reflective prayers, and I'll read them and then after each give you a little time before I go on to the next. And the first of these, from Anselm, reminds us that the core of all of this is to find Jesus, to seek Jesus, and then everything else will fall into place. And as we consider this, there's an interesting sequence. We seek and find Jesus, we learn to love him, and then we learn to hate our sins. We don't have to deal with our sins first. We deal with our sins because Christ motivates us to want to be different. Let's pray. O Lord our God, grant us grace to desire you with a whole heart, that so desiring you, we may seek you and find you, and so finding you may love you, and loving you may hate those sins 
from which you have redeemed us. For Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. The second prayer from Francis of Assisi is a prayer that we would know God's will and that we'd do the things that please him. And it emphasizes a little like the course we sang earlier that a lot of this is about following Jesus, walking in his footsteps. God Almighty, eternal, righteous, and merciful, may we poor sinners carry out your will and always do what pleases you. May we be so inwardly purified, enlightened, and alight with the fire of the Holy Spirit that we follow in the footsteps of your well-beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And the third prayer then is a short prayer from Thomas Akempis which just commits ourselves back into the certainty that God knows what's best. Doesn't really emphasize the idea that we will know what the detail's going to look like, but that rather we could have the confidence that God will work his will out through us, whatever our circumstance. O Lord, you know what is best for me. Let this or that be done as you wish. Give what you will, how much you will, and when you will. Amen.